number 7, and uh, we're entering a new chapter as we're coming through this book, verse by verse, and uh, we're chapter 7, we're coming down through verse number 12, and uh, this certainly has been an uh, intriguing study for me, one that uh, has encouraged me and helps give us perspective on uh, life under the sun, and that's really what Solomon is getting at, is life under the sun, that's what the whole theme of the book is, and uh, really some realities of life under the sun. Some of them are kind of hard to uh, understand at times and hard to digest, but yet they are what uh, life is and what uh, Scripture reveals to us. But today we're going to be looking at chapter one, or chapter 7, verse 1 through 12. And really this is uh, going to be very familiar to us in the realm of Proverbs. It, it looks very much like Proverbs. And, and so it gives us really some some hope and some light in the book as to how we ought to live this life under the sun. And so I've titled the message, Wise Words for Life Under the Sun. So let's read our text and we'll come through it together tonight and pray that it will edify and encourage us and we can glean some things that would apply to our life. Notice that he says, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go... and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why better than these? Wisdom that, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good for with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. You ever had anybody tell you, I want to give you some words of wisdom or some wise words? I've had that many times growing up in my life. Dad used to always pull me aside when I needed a little instruction, and let me give you some words of wisdom, son, and that's usually when it means pay attention because this is important, right? And Sometimes it was something very practical. Sometimes it was big picture, something I needed to know about life. Uh, maybe I've been given words of wisdom to others at some point. But regardless, what we know is that wisdom is of chief importance for us in this life under the sun, isn't it? Solomon was a man of wisdom, and we know that uh, the Bible describes him as the wisest man in, in, in the world, especially in his day and time, and probably no one wiser than him in history other than Jesus himself. Uh, one who is, who is God in the flesh. Uh, but we think about wisdom. We acquire many things in life that are important, some that are not so important, right? Anytime we prepare for a garage sale, we realize how many things we have that we didn't really think were that important. Uh, at the time we purchased it, we thought, man, this is really important, I need this. Uh, but then we find it tucked away in a closet and think, wow, why do we have this? It really wasn't that important. There's some things in our life that we've got to have things that we don't have to have, uh, but Scripture reveals to us there's something that we must have, and that is wisdom. We need to have wisdom for life. Pro, uh, uh, 
Solomon said it this way in Proverbs 4, 7. He said, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. (laughs) Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight or understanding. And so what he's saying there is that the wise thing to do is to get wisdom, pursue wisdom, because wisdom is the principal thing for all of life. Now, Solomon, a man of wisdom, as we all know, and in this chapter, he gives some wise words for life in this world. And through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's evaluated life under the sun. This has been a search. This has been an examination. He said, I sought out all things of life under the sun. And his conclusion is, all is vanity and chasing after the wind, a vexation of spirit. He has evaluated it in light of the world in its sin-cursed state. He's shown us the vanity of many things. And when we looked at the last chapter, chapter 6, it's probably one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. It, it seems to be one of disappointment and darkness, like there's not much light. But now we come to this passage and we see a lot of light. In fact, he concluded the last passage with some questions unanswered, but now really he's going to maybe give some insight into the answer to those questions that would benefit us. Now, as we come through this passage, we find it's a poetic section of Scripture that it reads much like the book of Proverbs, which is yet another indication, I think, that Solomon is the author here. Uh, It's a section that is very tightly organized, so it's very, very narrow in its statements and direct in its truths. It's not as broad in scope like uh, some of the other passages that we've looked at. But within it, we find some wisdom for just the practical living within life under the sun. So notice with me, um, just several points here I want to bring out of this. We see that I'm going to kind of head this as better things to live by in this life. And notice with me letter A tonight, or number one, if you'll, you'll follow with me. Our character is better than fortune. That's the first principle of wisdom he gives us. Our character is better than our fortune or wealth or anything valuable that we could acquire. Now, you're going to notice through this passage, kind of similar to previous passages, he uses that word better a lot. Better is this. Better is this. Better is that. He uses better eight times in ten verses. And in all the other verses, it's the same kind of principle being applied. Better is this than that. And in verse 1, notice what he says in the first part of this verse. A good name is better than precious ointment. What does Solomon mean by that? What does he mean by a good name? You know, when it comes to picking baby names, you're getting ready to have a baby, that to me is one of the hardest things in the world is to pick a good name, right? And that's usually why I just leave it to Bethany, and I kind of agree if I think it's good enough. And if it's something crazy, I'll say, no, we ain't doing that. Um, but we tend, to, we tend to find some, you know, an agreeing, a, a name we can agree on, right? We, we want the child's name to be... Um, unique, I guess, to them, and one that we can live with as well. Um, and that's important. Uh, the, name, the name that we choose for our children is important, and, um, but it's not exactly what Solomon's talking about, although it is connected as you, if you look at the big picture. When we see talk, Solomon talking about a good name, he's talking about the reputation of a person, the character, and what they're known for, right? In Israel, a name was uh, not just a label, But it was intended to express an underlying nature. And so what's in view here is not simply a good name, which may be undeserved, but a reputation that flows out of the character of a person's life. 
And, and so your name, when we talk, talk about your name here, your name is your character and your conduct that you're known by. What are you known for? What is your name? What is your testimony? What is your reputation? Now, and I think this is, um, this is extra important for us who are Christians because we not only carry our own name, what other name do we carry upon our life? We carry Christ's name, don't we? We carry the name of Christ. That's so important for us to gather. You know, Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, okay? I always love this passage by way of being mindful of our, our life we live. 2 Corinthians 3, 2, he said, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read of all men. So what Paul is saying is that you yourselves, you're, you're, as your Christian life, and as a church, you're, you're a testimony, you're a letter yourself that everybody's reading. Everybody's reading our lives. Everybody's watching our lives, right, in one way or another. And so that's important to consider for our home, for our church, for uh, our place of work, um, just being out in the community. We are watched and read by people around us developing our name. And so character is, is the undergirding truth here we need to see. But notice that not only is our name here, we see it's, it's powerful in its influence and, and that we reflect the character of ourselves and it should be rooted in Christ. But notice, notice this, our name is also of priceless value. There, there's, a, there's a contrast here that Solomon gives us. He says that a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment. Now, to understand the value of that, you kind of have to go backwards and think about some of the things in Solomon's day and in the Bible times of what was valuable to them. We could think of gold and silver, and that, he'll, he'll mention that in Proverbs in a moment. But we think about ointment. Ointment in ancient times was a very costly luxury that many people could not afford. I think we see an example of this. There's some in the Old Testament. For time's sake, I'm not taking you there. But in the New Testament, you remember not long before Jesus goes to the cross, a woman comes and anoints him with ointment. In Mark 14, in verse 3 through 5, I put it in your notes so you can see it. It says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now this woman is giving a really an offering, a blessing to the Lord Jesus before he goes to the cross, anointing his head. And some of the disciples, we know Judas in particular, who was the money bag holder, right? He was always up to no good, mad, because that's a lot of money. Now, notice what it, what it says here. How, how much was this oil really worth? We see there's 300 denarii. Well, one denarii was tip, as a typical one day's wage, for someone back in that time. So 300 denarii is almost a whole year's worth of salary or wages. Think about working a whole year, how, much, how long that takes, how much energy. And this woman just breaks this bottle of ointment on and, and anoints Jesus' head with that much of that oil. That shows you the worth of it. And so Solomon is saying here that our name, our character known to others, is of greater value than these costly commodities. You know why that is? Because you can't purchase a good name. 
You might be able to buy some favor from some people, but you cannot purchase a good name. It is earned. It is lived out over your life. Proverbs said it, Solomon said it this way in Proverbs, Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be tro- chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. How precious our name is. We've got to protect it. You see, our name is also preserved, which, ad- which adds to its value. Who we are and who we were after we're dead lives on in the memory of the other people, either for good or for bad. Right? Solomon said it this way. Proverbs 10, 7. I'm using a lot of Proverbs tonight because it all ties together. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Now, we all remember people in certain ways. There's some people remember in very good ways. People we knew who were faithful Christians, they were loving and humble and generous and selfless and servants and, and uh, just overall good Christian people. But then there's others who we know who were maybe a stain on history, selfish and proud and, and greedy and careless and lazy. Name of the wicked will rot. You think about the, the stain of names like Hitler and Stalin and others in history that, that there's no such thing as a good name for them. It's, it's, it's a rotting name. And so we think about this. The question really comes down to our own lives. Do we care about our name? When people hear your name, what comes to their mind? Do they think of someone who is cheerful or critical? Someone who speaks truth or exaggerates the facts? Someone who is humble or proud? Someone who is selfish or someone who is selfless and generous? So this is wisdom for us, having a good name. Notice with me letter B. Notice that we're going to move into some things that might be hard to understand at first, but we've got to understand Solomon's perspective. Notice letter B, our death day is better than our birthday. Now, I had to sit and ponder on that for a minute because don't we all love our birthdays, right? <laughs> but uh, Solomon says our death days are better than our birthday. Notice what he says in verse 1, in the day of death and the day of birth. Now, That might be a hard one to grasp, but here Solomon speaks it. It's in the inspired pages of Scripture. How can the day of our death be better than the day of our birth? When a baby's born, isn't that one of the most joyful occasions we experience in this world? Absolutely it is. When someone dies, isn't that one of the most sorrowful occasions that we experience in this world? Which event do we tend to think of as being better? We tend to think of life coming into the world as better than life going out of the world. That's how we would think, right? But to understand what Solomon's saying, you've got to understand his perspective in the text in the whole of Ecclesiastes. Remember, his whole perspective through this book is life under the sun in this sin-cursed world. That's the perspective. And what has Solomon's viewpoint been through this? He's shown us the realities of life in a sin-cursed world. Those realities are hard and troublesome to ponder. In this life, what is there? Trouble, affliction, hardship, pain, suffering, sin, death, all of those those hard things that we experience in life under the sun, right? The world is cursed by sin and full of great pain. And so this is the point. When a person dies, they're leaving behind all that. When a person's born, they're just now entering into all of that. That's the perspective of Solomon here. That's what he's showing us. It's just a reality of life under the sun. Job said it this way, Job 14.1. He said, man that is born of woman is of few days and full of what? Trouble. That's the reality of life, isn't it? 
this is really a callback to what Solomon said previously in Ecclesiastes 4.2. We covered it. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. So you understand the dead have departed this world of affliction due to sin. Now, I think it's important for us to note this, that Solomon is speaking to what would be God's people, right? Death necessarily isn't um, something to look forward to if you don't know the one true God. You don't know the one true God because death is entrance into one place or another place. There's heaven and there's hell. Not all people go to heaven, contrary to what many people in the world say, even in what many modern Christians are saying. Why is it that not all people go to heaven? Because we are stained with sin, we are corrupt, and except Jesus forgives us of our sins by his blood, we cannot enter into the presence of God. We're worthy of our own judgment that we deserve. And so hell is not a fairy tale, but it's a reality that God warns us about, and he makes clear to us that this is a place for those who die when they don't know Christ, where they go to. But for the believer, think of Solomon, and thank you to the people of God, for the believer, the day of their death is a departure from this sin-cursed world into the presence of Jesus himself. Now ponder that from a Christian standpoint. Paul said to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What does that mean? Be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Because when you die, your body stays behind, but where you go, your spirit goes on. In the spirit of the Christian, the moment they die, they depart the body and they enter into the presence of Christ. Now, here's a wonderful passage, I think, that further helps points Philippians 1 if you'll turn there with me Philippians 1 verse 21 through 23 notice this I love I love Paul's heart he, he's a great example for us of his perspective on life because you read through his letters, his life especially in the gospel ministry was full of suffering and affliction and agony being stoned and left for dead and beaten and whipped and persecuted and chased down and imprisoned so much but notice, notice what he says here. In, in Philippians 1, verse 21 through verse 23, you'll notice he says, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You understand, Paul is writing with death approaching him. He's in prison when he pins this down, and he knows he's on death row. He ain't going to get out. No more missionary journeys for Paul. No more going to do anything that he loved to do in this world. He knows that he's near his end. But he also knows that God's in charge over how long he lives here, right? So he's saying, if, I, if God has me continue to live that means I just get to work more and labor and help you all and, and serve Jesus. He's fine with that. But his desire is this. I'm really looking forward to departing and being with Christ. Why does he say? Because it's far better. Not just a little better, but being with Christ is far better. It's far better than, than this world. And that's what we as Christians have to look forward to. We look forward to that. So now, now, coming back to Solomon, death, it's a grim reality, but it's a reality that grips us and causes us to think about 
What lies ahead beyond the grave? For the believer, it is a wonderful future. But for the unbeliever, it's a very fearful thing. Very fearful thing that should be considered. Notice with me letter C. Here's another one you might think is, what's Solomon talking about? Here he's saying death is better than our birth. Well, we see the perspective, right? But now we see another one that's somewhat similar. kind of flows in the same line of thought. Letter C, funerals are better than festivals. Funerals are better than festivals. Like, what in the world? Verse 2, look at this. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now, if you had a choice tonight to go to a funeral or a festival or a party or get-together, which would you choose? I think I'd rather go have some fun, right? Rather enjoy some time playing games or whatever, right? I'm not fond of going to funerals. They're sad. It's a sorrowful event. We don't like going to those, right? You wouldn't rather go to a graveside than go, to, go, to, go have some fun with friends. But yet this is another saying of Solomon that, that some may not understand right away. Why does Solomon say this? Notice he says the house of mourning, going to the house of mourning, that this is the end of all mankind. Now, in Bible days, funerals and that sort of thing, they're just in the house. Modern days, sometimes it's in the church, sometimes it's in a funeral home. But regardless, the principle applies the same way, all right? Why does he say this? What does he mean by this statement? He means that death is where every person's heading. Notice this. This is the end of all mankind. What's he saying? Death is where everybody's heading. Everybody's going to have their own funeral. It's an inescapable reality. Hebrews tells us plainly in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed a man once to die and after this judgment. It's appointed us to die. You say, well, why is it appointed us to die? Why must we die? Why can't we just not die, right? The answer is the same as all the other sufferings that Solomon points out. Sin. Sin is the problem. We are sinners. Sin has invaded us. Sin has invaded this world. And God must judge sin. That's inescapable. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam, our father in the sense of our humanity, he wanted all to sin from him. His sin is passed on to everybody else, and we're all guilty with our own nature of sin. We don't need help doing it. We naturally do it. We don't have to be taught to do it. That's what we are. What happens when people attend a funeral? Here's what Solomon says. The living will lay it to heart. The living who attend the funeral will lay it to heart or take it into their consideration. You see, when the living attends a funeral, the reality of death is brought to the forefront of their mind. The reality of death is brought to the forefront of their minds. Now, death is easy to ignore when you're enjoying a festival, when you're at a party. You're not thinking about death. You're not thinking about these things when you're doing all the fun stuff and things in the world, right? Death may be ignored, but not at a funeral home. You cannot ignore death at the funeral. You just can't do it. Now, I've experienced this many times. How many of us have ever gone to a funeral and the reality of death has struck us once again? We realize we are mortal beings. We're not going to live forever. We're going to have our own funeral someday, right? Now, here's what we see. We tend to easily forget about the reality of death by the busyness of life. 
And in fact, most people in the world do their best to distract themselves from the reality of death. I'm going to keep myself busy. I'm going to keep having fun and, and do this and do that so I don't have to think about death. But the reality is they're going to come to a day with death. You can't escape it. You cannot escape it. In such a state, when we're ignoring death or it's not on our minds, we may not live as we ought to live in this world. What does a fresh reminder of death do for us, or at least should do for us? It should cause us to consider our own life and how we're living and what we're using it for. Moses said, Psalm 90 and verse 12. He said this in light of death and the shortness of years. He said, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of what? Wisdom. Isn't that what Solomon's all about here? Wisdom. This is what this is all about. Wisdom. You see, every funeral we attend anticipates our own funeral. So therefore, we must live wisely unto our God. Solomon continues this same theme through the next two verses. Verse 3, notice he says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of sadness of face the heart is made glad. This is yet another statement that challenges conventional wisdom, right? There's a cause and effect here. The irony is that sorrow itself can bring inward healing and happiness by going through it. Through sorrow, we contemplate life itself before God, and that sorrow often affects our life for good, leading us to gladness. Not only does sorrow affect us personally, but often... Sorrow of a loved one passing can also be a scene of joy and celebration among God's people. Now, I've been to both kinds of funerals. I've been to some funerals where it was very tragic and very sorrowful, unexpected or, or, or very hard to go through and deal with. I've been to other funerals where there was nothing but joy. Sure, there were some tears, but they were tears of joy that this person has lived his full life and, and, and they're, they're with Jesus now. I mean, there's no doubt about where they're at. And so there's, there's, a, there's an atmosphere of joy. There is gladness within the sorrow. And so that's something we can experience as Christians. You see, sorrow is not always a bad thing, for it turns us to a better way than before. And with in mind, in verse 4, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So what he's saying here is that fools only want to live for now and disregard the reality of death, while the wise do the opposite. They contemplate the reality of death the reality of life, and they live accordingly. One's heart being in the house of mourning means that he's reflecting on that. So the truth for us here is that we need to contemplate the reality of death and live in light of it. We don't know when our last day is. So therefore, we need to live accordingly. And how do we live accordingly? We live wisely unto God. Live wisely unto God as the Scriptures revealed to us. Notice with me, letter D. I'll try to come through these somewhat quickly. I know there's several points, but I'll do it quick. And if I run out of time, I'll just break it in half and we'll continue next week. But um, letter D, here's the next wise principle he brings to our attention. Faithful criticism is better than foolish praise. Faithful criticism is better than foolish praise. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now, who here likes to receive criticism? None of us really enjoy it, right? If we had the choice, we would, we would love to hear praise because that's our natural inclination. We like to be praised and uh, uplifted, right? That's how we're humanly wired. But criticism is part of life. You know why? 
Because there's not any one of us that are perfect and without error, and without need of improvement. None of us are. Now, sometimes criticism can come from a bad source in a bad way from someone with bad motives. Some criticism you just need to ignore because it's somebody just being ornery. You've got to be able to judge between that. But then there's good criticism. Other criticism comes from a good source in a good way and from good motives. And that is for our benefit. That's called constructive criticism. And you know who's really good at that? Our spouses. <laughs> if you're married, you understand, right? Bethany's good at giving me some constructive criticism. Sometimes I don't always like to hear it, but I needed to hear it, right? And vice versa. But notice this. This is what Solomon's talking about. It's better to hear from the wise than to hear from the song of fools. Hear rebuke. So, so the rebuke from the wise is constructive criticism that we need in times to help us. This comes from people who care about us and want what's best for us. A lot of times this comes because they see something that you don't see. Because every single one of us have blind spots. None of us, none of us see everything in our life. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Fuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, we'd all rather have a kiss, but it comes from an enemy. There's ill intention there. But a wound, it doesn't feel good, but there's good intention there. Sometimes what we need to hear are like wounds. They cut deep. They cut deep. Isn't that the whole reality of preaching sin and repentance? It's speaking the truth that can save sinners, although they don't like to hear the truth of their sin and God's holiness and need of repentance and God's judgment. It cuts deep into our nature. And so if we're to live wisely in this world, we must be humble enough to listen to wise criticism. Proverbs 15, I think, is a good reference point here. Proverbs 15, look at verse 31 through verse 33. Notice what Solomon says here. He says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Right there, Solomon describing further the same thing he's saying in Ecclesiastes. The ear that listens, takes in this reproof, this rebuke from those who give it with wisdom, they'll dwell among the wise. But those who ignore instruction, they only do it to their own hurt. They only do it to their own hurt. So the opposite of this is the song of fools. This refers to praise from people who really don't care and possibly only want to get on your good side. I've experienced several people like that. They build me up only to get on my good side. Nobody here. You guys aren't like that, but I'm talking about back home. I've had experiences, um, experiences with people that they just they wanted to get on your good side. And I don't know why. I don't have much to offer. I mean, I'm just a preacher, right? Um, but there are people that will do that to you. They want to build you up just to get on your good side. They have ulterior motives, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with receiving encouragement or praise in the sense of you're you're giving a legitimate reason to encourage somebody, okay? I'm not downing that. That's not what Solomon's talking about. But what he's talking about here is empty praise that really does no good. The wise may encourage for the right reason, but the fool tells only what a person wants to hear rather than what they need to hear. And that is, I think, the difference. 
Now, Solomon proceeds forward in verse 6. Notice how he describes this foolish praise. He says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. You ever tried to burn thorns? A fire made of thorns is very short-lived. It crackles and it gives a few flames, but it does not give a lasting heat. It does not give a lasting heat. It is more of a quick flame than a lasting fire. And so, so it is with the praise of fools. Their praise is fleeting and not nearly as helpful as a rebuke of a wise person. And so Solomon says, this is vanity. It's empty. It's like breath. There's no point. It's meaningless. It's chasing the wind. And so here's what we gather from this. We ought to be open to wise and helpful criticism and not be flattered by foolish praise. This is a practice of wisdom. Letter E. Letter E, and quickly. Honest gain is better than dishonest gain. That's the next principle. Honest gain is better than dishonest gain. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Well, what's he saying here? It seems a little bit random or out of place. Well, it's really not. It's another principle of wisdom. The word oppression here, it generally refers to extortion or fraud. That's one other root word there. And so what you find in this verse is extortion and bribes together being used. Those are both forms of dishonest gain and dishonest usage. You see, those who engage in such activity bring about their own downfalls. What Solomon's saying, a wise man who uses oppression turns him into a fool. You see, it is fools who engage in that type of gain. Just to give you a couple references. Solomon said in Proverbs 22.16, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. There's that oppression, extortion, and fraud, mistreating them. Jeremiah said it this way, 17.11, Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and his end will be a fool. Unjust dishonest gain. Someone rightly said, God can turn a pound of dishonest gain into a thousand pounds of misery. There's a lot of truth in that. God said in his law, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. So I think the principle of wisdom is plain here, that honest gain is the way to live. Dishonest gain may benefit for a brief time, but in the end it only leads to a downfall down a foolish road, and ultimately all dishonest gain is held accountable before God in the end. So we need to live honestly, and we live with integrity in all things. Letter F, patient perseverance is better than impulsive practices. Patient perseverance is better than impulsive practices. Notice verse 8 and 9 as we come through this. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud. Now, the end of a thing here refers to the completion, the accomplishment, getting to the end of something that was begun earlier, right? Have we ever been glad that something was done when in the beginning we were really looking forward to it to being done? Usually, sometimes long-winded preachers will make you feel like that, right? You know what I'm talking about. talking about me. I feel this way about road trips. Ugh. I felt so bad for mom this morning. She left about 7, and she finally got home about 6 our time, but 
just the thought of getting in the car and driving for 10 hours. You know, you, you start, you get going. But once you get to the end, you get home. What a relief that is. Oh, it's so great <laughs> to be done, to be at the end. But here's what we find. We can find many examples to, to apply to this too. Central to Solomon's point here is patience in this something to the very end rather than being arrogant and proud and impatient through it. Patience and pride are in view here. Now, this could easily apply to the trials and hardships of life, especially as Christians. What did James tell us in the New Testament? James 1, verse 1 through 2, or 2 through 3, excuse me. 2 through 4, actually. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, also translated as patience, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When the end of a trial is experienced, isn't it good and relieving that you've come to the end? But patience and perseverance were necessities through that trial. Pride in such times does no good. And ultimately, I think you look at the big picture of things, all the trials of life, we finally get to heaven to meet Jesus, it will be worth it all when you get there, won't it? Be worth it all. Sure is. So we must not be arrogant and act like that, act like we know what's best for our life, when really it's God who knows what's best for our life. He's providential in all things. We need to take the long view. And with patience, come to the end with joy in his providence in our life. But notice verse 9. This is in the same line of thought. Solomon says in verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Boy, I was tested with this one playing golf the other day with Bethany. If you ever want to test whether you've got patience or not, get out on the golf course. I don't know why I go back. I love the game. But man, sometimes I just want to sell my clubs or throw them or do something I shouldn't do, right? Be not quick in your spirit to be angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. See, those who are impatient are quick to be angry in whatever they're involved in, especially when there's discomfort or hardship. Being quick to anger is easy to do, very easy to do, in the various circumstances that we experience. But here's the question, what good does anger ever do? What good does anger ever do? It doesn't do anything. It makes you feel good in a moment for a second because you're letting all of it out, but then at the end, it didn't do anything, and you regret your anger. That's how it works. Again, James says in the New Testament, 1 verse 19 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when it comes to anger, we have to be slow to it. Why? Because he says anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now, sometimes it may be challenging to control that anger. Nevertheless, Scripture commends against it, and he commend, Scripture commends those who can control it, as Proverbs 16.32 tells us. So the principle of wisdom here is to be patient and slow to anger to the end of whatever it is that we go through. Letter G. I don't usually have these many letters. It's usually numbers, so... I'm kind of getting distracted here realistic thinking is better than nostalgic thinking realistic thinking is better than nostalgic thinking now who doesn't like some nostalgia right 
it's sometimes encouraging to think back on some past good times or things that we've experienced, maybe the blessings of God or the workings of God in the past. But Solomon points out here that we're not to keep looking back there and stay there, right? Verse 10, he says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask that. The wis- see, see, asking why, why can't the days today be as good as back then, wisdom doesn't ask that question. If you're asking that question, that's not a wise question to ask, is what Solomon's saying. There's a video channel that I follow on social media, and it brings up these old images of things in a long time ago. So long ago, back in the 90s and 2000s. Y'all remember that? <laughs> I, I was born in 1990, and so I grew up in school, you know, through the late 90s and then 2000s. But it'll have this real nostalgic-type music playing, and it'll show this show things that I remember in school, you, the, the overhead projectors that they used to teach from. Can't get those anymore, right? The big bulky computers or the pencil sharpeners or the, the fish tanks that used to be at Walmart, you know, the lobster circle. I remember seeing the lobsters at Walmart. Anybody remember that? But all those things come up, and it, and it kind of takes my mind and my heart back to a time when I was a kid. And I didn't, you know, you know, life was easier. You didn't have all the responsibilities of life, bills to pay, and and different things that you have to do as an adult, right? Just live at home with mom and dad, let them bring the groceries home, feed me, and I can play video games and play basketball, and life is good. I can look back and think, man, why can't it be like that? But that's not what God wants us to do, is it? He says it's not wise to think that way. It's not wise to think that way. Now, here's, here's what we find. Israel's a great example of this. This was Israel's problem in the desert wilderness when God delivered them from Egypt. Numbers 11, 5 through 6 fits perfectly with this text. The Israelites are saying, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. What are the Israelites doing? They're looking back at Egypt and thinking, man, life was a lot better back then rather than now when all we've got is this manna. They were looking at the present provisions of God as not as good as the past provisions of God. And what they're failing to do is to be thankful for the present provisions while looking forward to the even better than Egypt provisions in the promised land, the land of milk and honey. They had a misplaced perspective. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that trap too. It can be easy to think back at certain good times of the past and wish we were still there, but that denies the reality of life at that time too. Sure, they had melons and all this food they wanted, but what was wrong at that time? They were in bondage. They were slaves. You see, every era of life that we might look forward to or back to is going to have its hardships. It's also going to have its blessings. It's also going to have its blessings. So we're to live today trusting God and praising Him. Wisdom does not want you to live where you don't presently live in time. Letter H, last one. Trying to make good time here. I usually done about this time, but I'll just give me five seconds or five minutes. I don't lie to you. Five minutes, not five seconds. Wisdom in stewardship is better than wealth itself. 
We come to these last two verses. He says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, wisdom is greatly needed in all areas of life, as we've seen. But you look at verse 11, he says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Those who see the sun are those who are still living. Those who are living. Now, there's a couple different interpretations here based on the Hebrew. One could be that wisdom is as good as an inheritance, meaning it's greatly valued and to be received. Or wisdom is needed when receiving an inheritance, which also is true. Regardless of what interpretation you may take, the point really comes to the same conclusion. Wisdom is what we need in our stewardship. If we receive an inheritance, we need wisdom. That's what Solomon was concerned with about who our inheritance is left to, right, earlier in the book. Who knows if it's going to go to someone who will waste it and misuse it or someone who's wise and will use it wisely. Uh, if the first inter- interpretation is correct, then we need to recognize wisdom is of great value. Much like our name, we need to have it. But in the second part in verse 12, he says, The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is indeed a form of protection in our life. And so also is money. Now, Solomon has already said, money does not satisfy and it's not the end-all, be-all to life. Very plain. But money is a tool to be used for certain protections in life. It's wise to have an emergency fund for when you need tires or the dishwasher goes out or something else happens. It's wise to have that. You've got to have money to live in that sort of way, Right? But more important than money is wisdom itself. You may have all the money in the world, but if you don't have wisdom, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. So that's the advantage. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves life of him who has it. Money without wisdom is really no protection at all, but wisdom without money is still a protection in itself because wisdom is priceless. So there's many wise words here in this text for life under the sun, and we've seen, seen them. So my encouragement to you is maybe to reflect on them. You have the notes, take them home with you, but seek to apply them to your life. I won't seek to rehearse all of them, but seek to apply these wise principles to our life because that's, this is some of the, the light that Solomon gives about life of the sun. It's so gloomy and dark when you look at all the realities of life in the sin-cursed world. Well, we're meant to live it wisely. Live it wisely to the glory of God, and he will bless, bless that indeed.